Welcome to the Kelly Patrick Show. Thank you for tuning in. In today's episode, I am joined by Jack Lloyd to talk about many topics, but we do end up getting into the Israel and Palestine type conversation from a a little bit of a different perspective than what I'm really familiar with. So really enjoyable conversation today. I appreciate Jack coming on. If you're a fan of the Kelly Patrick Show, I ask that you please send some referrals the way my sponsors. The title sponsor of the show is Louisville Combat Academy, located at 7908 Beulah Church Road, Louisville, Kentucky, 40228. They have a great MMA program, but also, even if you aren't planning on fighting in the cage, they have a great jiu-jitsu program for adults, female-friendly classes, and a great kids program also. Check out Louisville Combat Academy. Heidi Solars Coots. Heidi is a licensed clinical social worker and licensed clinical alcohol and drug counselor, specializing in treating anxiety, depression, trauma, and addiction with a mindful and holistic approach. Heidi is actually my mother, and I can attest she is a saint. Call her at 502-457-1823. Virtual and telephonic appointments are available anywhere in the United States. Veercast Digital Media. Veercast Digital Media at veercast.com. Matt McCarthy runs Veercast, and he is also the producer for The Kelly Patrick Show. They do video production, aerial drone photography, web design, and podcast production. Contact them at info at veercast.com to start your own video show or podcast. Also, my health insurance practice, Benefits Analysis Corporation. Based in Troy, Ohio, I work from my Louisville, Kentucky office. I can help anyone in the United States with their health insurance needs. I'm an independent broker for health insurance solutions for individuals, families, Medicare-eligible individuals, and also groups. I can also write life insurance, and long-term care. If you want to support the podcast, please send me some referrals. 502-386-0978. Welcome to the Kelly Patrick Show. Thank you so much for tuning in in today's episode. I am joined by returning guest, Jack Lloyd. Jack, if it's all right, could you do a proper introduction for yourself, please? Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Kelly. I appreciate it. So for me, I... Do a lot of different things. I'm pretty much a a producer for Liberty these days, which means I create all kinds of content from music and music videos to memes, educational videos, a comic book series, uh, nonfiction books, and my wonderful voluntarist, uh, I guess you could say, a campaign that's currently out for voluntarist Suit Saga 1. My comic book series has been running for a long time uh, at this point, over 10 years, and I'm, I'm really proud of it, and we have that going on Indiegogo right now. So definitely check that out. Um, and before I was doing this type of thing where I'm producing a lot of content for Liberty and educating people on the principles, um, I used to be a criminal defense attorney, a state school teacher, tutoring company owner, um, and, uh, you know, odds and ends person there too, with some other talents, but you know, those are some of the main things. I know we've recorded episodes before, so I apologize if any of this is redundant, but my summary for myself, Jack, I'm 40 years old. When I was in high school, I did not take well to school, so I was always kind of like, fuck school, you know. I'm not going to claim I had a real principled stance. It just didn't, I didn't really stick well with, you know, being a good student, and so I wasn't a fan of school. And I was raised by a Republican father, Democrat mother, who's kind of, my mom's great. She's just a saint, kind of like a 
Democrat, I say, but she she voted Libertarian. She voted for Joe Jorgensen recently. I mean, she's she's not like a steadfast uh, Democrat, but I had great parents, and I, I was a Republican my whole life until 2020. And because of the chaos through 2020, I politically evolved or had like a epiphany or whatever it is. So I'm, I guess my point, Jack, is I'm pretty new to all this still. Um, that's my story about what brought me into the world of liberty or, you know, anarcho-libertarianism or whatever it is. You mentioned that you were a state school teacher. I like how you framed that. And you were a tutor and you were a defense attorney. Um, politically, how did you come to where you're at now? What's your backstory about your political or philosophical evolution? Sure. So when I was growing up, my parents were more on the conservative evangelical right or, and, you know, combining that together, neoconservative kind of outlook. So they would support Bush and they supported the wars and also their stuff. And I grew up giving lip service to what I thought was liberty, but I obviously did not know what it meant to have true respect of property rights and peace and a free market. And I didn't really challenge my thinking at that level in depth and robustly until college when I was in my history class and we were talking about the American eugenics movement. And during that course, we talked about the case of Buck v. Bell, where Carrie Buck was sentenced to be sterilized forcibly because she had epilepsy and Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes said three generations of imbeciles enough and they you know, cut out her ovaries. And I was shocked because I thought this was something that only happened in other countries that, you know, the eugenics movement was something that was in Germany. So hearing this, I was like, oh, my gosh, if, if I didn't know that and that wasn't taught to me in high school, what else don't I know? So it, it forced me to go and start to reread everything and think everything anew. And I came across people like. Alex Jones, who uh, sent me down some rabbit holes back then and helped me to see what the government actually does when you get past the propaganda. And then I started to go further and look into libertarian thinkers like Lysander Spooner and eventually came across uh, Larkin Rose and Mark Stevens of the No State Project. And I came eventually to a point where I read this quote that said, should goods and services be provided at the barrel of a gun? And I said to myself, no, I, you know, I, I can't ethically think that's okay, no matter what, you know, in terms of this being an ethical norm. And so that journey took place between 2005 and, and 2010, essentially going from what was a neoconservative to a paleoconservative to a libertarian to a voluntarist through debate, through research and analyzing, and, you know, eventually coming to terms with the truth of what the state is. How many books have you published? I have three nonfiction books, The Definitive Guide to Libertarian Voluntarism, A Vision for a Libertarian Future, and my latest Philosophical Voluntarism. And then I have a series of comic books out that are currently in print. It's uh, Voluntarist Origins 1 to 6. It's six issues and a trade paperback, and we're currently working on the seventh in that canon chronology. So quite a few between nonfiction and fiction. When is the last time you voted? Oh, not that long time. It's got to be, I can't even remember now. I'm trying to think. It's it's definitely over eight years. It's got to be, yeah, some, something between eight and 10 years ago, probably. Okay. Um, so, of course, all very fascinating conversation. Um, you know, diff 
uh, different angles to libertarian or uh, anarcho thought within the world of libertarian, I guess, anti-war, anti-government um, thought in 2023. There are many popular personalities. Of course, I guess Dave Smith gets a lot of repetition on the Joe Rogan experience. Therefore, he's, of course, one of the people that people think of right now when it comes to libertarian um, thought or anti-war rhetoric from a, I guess you could say almost a libertarian, almost right-leaning type perspective. Would you consider yourself more, and this may be a shitty question, would you consider yourself more in the mold of maybe Michael Malice than you are Dave Smith? That's an interesting one because I would say Michael Malice is, you know, so hardcore anarchist, you know, at his core um, that that might be where I would say I'd be closer. Uh, Dave, of course, has certain articulations about his views that uh, I think are imprecise, you know, in defining the terms of of the nature of people and government when he uses uh, collectivist ideas about what people want and saying, oh, you know, this is what voters want. Um, I think that that's really imprecise language, whereas Michael Malice calls himself a no labels anarchist, you know, black flag anarchist, and he just is against all statism and he's non-participatory in, you know, anyway, in, in, in that general sense, even though he is, of course, friendly with the LP and people there. Um, so maybe, uh, maybe you might count it by that factor that I might be closer to Malice uh, than Dave Smith in terms of articulations, but I would say being familiar with both of their articulations, I would certainly have what I would consider more precise articulations of the principles of liberty as relates to property rights and ethics. And I certainly could, you know, point out differences. Dave Smith appeared to be gearing up for a presidential run in 2024 for a couple of years. And then he ended up, you know, passing on the opportunity that may have been a, I would guess that's probably a good decision for him and his family. I'm guessing things like that. Uh, I don't think running as a, a libertarian candidate, although it may be, you know, uh, spread the good word and do some good things. I, I, I sounds like it would probably be in many ways a discouraging process. So would you say, would you agree with my statement, Jack, that what Dave Smith has done as far as immigration and those types of topics is some certain uh, certain issues related to electability, he has molded or, or came to a conclusion that if he needed to run, he's got some things thought out that would appeal to Republicans more so with the, maybe, for example, the border control, immigration, things like that. And therefore, also, he stopped smoking weed, I think is interesting. Um, he, he, he's become a little bit more religious over the past few years. He's much more of a family, family man now. So it almost looked like in a lot of ways he was gearing up for a political, uh, future. Um, but do you think that's a, a fair analysis of some of his ideas and, and the, the evolution of Dave Smith over the years? I would say that when it comes to his ideology, I actually don't think that he has uh, catered to the mainstream right. I believe he was always that. Uh, and I would say that from a personal experience, uh, I uh, had an argument myself with Dave Smith in person at Mises University uh, in 2019, where we were discussing issues on uh, library use, <laughs> whether homeless people you know, should be allowed in there, that kind of thing. And even back then, Dave Smith, um, I think, still carried his uh, conservative baggage, which is its own interesting topic because naturally being on Legion of Skanks, 
and the topics they talk about that are often body and crass and, you know, are not exactly things that you normally associate with conservatism. You know, usually think people tend to be more uh, Christian oriented, at least in the American experience of conservatism. But um, he always had those views. So I actually don't really see it as him pandering at all when it comes to that. I think he's just kept those. He's he's just had those and hasn't really changed those. He has changed on other views, of course. Um, he's become more libertarian in understanding the nature of of the state and property rights in in different ways, of course. Um, so certainly credit there. And he's done a great job, obviously, of, of promoting these values on Rogan and the Mises Caucus. So that's always appreciated. Um, I would say the life reforms, uh, I couldn't speak to what's in his head, but certainly there has been a cultural shift uh, among young people and even, you know, people who are getting up there in their 40s and 50s, uh, who are starting to take care of themselves. And a little bit of this piggybacking is probably off the Jordan Peterson movement that started, you know, with the with the whole clean your room thing and the 12 rules thing. And eventually people started to drift toward a new sense of existentialism and self-care. And so uh, people have started to move away from what was, I would think, a, a kind of leftist cultural influence that was itself a reactionism to the 90s evangelical height. That is, you know, that conservative uh, Christian height that kind of peaked, you know, between the 80s and the 90s. Those people who grew up in that had a reaction to that. We think about a lot of the the punk and uh, kind of alternative music that was happening about, about that time and Eminem and all that kind of stuff and the battles over, you know, parental advisory labels, right? You think about that in the late 90s and early 2000s. Um, so there was this rebellion movement and the young and young people were, you know, rebelling in, in those ways. But those things they would rebel on, of course, had some self-destructive aspects to that. Um, part of the hedonism obviously can can really hurt you if you just uh, drink all the time and just party all the time and consume whatever you want in terms of media and think, oh, that doesn't have an effect on me because it does, right? What you put in your body and what you put in your mind will affect your destiny. It's going to affect your health. It's going to affect your decision-making. It's going to you know, affect your relationships. And so there's been a kind of rediscovery of this concept of self-care and it does kind of coalesce a bit with some of the uh, religious aspects. There's been a, a new wave of people who have been turning to Christianity um, in the recent years uh, in this process as well, uh, which is itself, in my opinion, is, is another form of, of reactionary uh, elements to, to what was the leftist height going into the mid, you know, 2010s, between 2010 and 2020. Okay, I'm going to shift gears a little bit. Were you raised in a religious household? Are you religious? Yes, yeah, so I was raised in a messianic uh, household that's a, a Jewish Christian household. And what that means is that it's Christians who uh, still value and, and practice some of the Jewish holidays and have more of a, a, a Jewish mindset when it comes to thinking through the Bible and, um, you know, how that applies to one's life. And it's not, you know, Jewish as in like some type of funny thing, be like cheap or something. It's, it's more so understanding that because the Bible was written, uh, you know, by Jewish persons, by and large, written in Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. Uh, but of course, you know, with Hebrew roots and a, uh, you know, backdrop that, of course, Jesus himself followed uh, of, of following the Jewish holidays and, you know, and the last supper was him celebrating Passover with his Jewish, you know, disciples. 
Um, understanding that, you know, is, is a way to enrich your understanding of the totality of what is in the Bible. So that's a part of, of that religious practice is, is having that mindset um, and not getting lost in what is otherwise a Hellenistic mindset and the Julian calendar, you know, and then that was updated later, but basically the total rejection of, of all Jewish culture, customs, and practice that practices that would inform your understanding of both the old and new Testament. So for me, most of my life, I was uh, in that I <laughs> had done all kinds of things you could imagine when it comes to, to Christianity. I've been to most every major denomination that you can imagine. I've been on mission trips around the world. I've uh, interned at Campus Crusade for Christ. Um, I have, you know, robustly analyzed the Bible, memorized tons of it, you know, know, know the books, um, you know, have looked at it in original language, uh, you know, and uh, even my uh, dad has written two books on eschatology, which is studied in times. So it's very familiar from, to me and intimate to me um, up through my early 20s. And then, you know, basically about in the 23, 24 arena, I started to move away from that for, for various reasons. Um, and I'm, I'm now agnostic, but that was a huge part of my upbringing and uh, my life. I mean, we're, we're talking about, you know, being in Christian school and being at chapel on Thursdays, being at youth group on Wednesdays, going to temple on Saturdays and church on Sundays and vacation Bible school. I mean, I lived it, you know, and my, my dad was even on big shows and stuff like that. He was on the 700 club. He was, um, you know, a part of the focus on the families, like newsletter subscription, that kind of thing. And, you know, very, very deep, very deep. And then he even had this uh, Christian ministry with addiction that got recognized by Bill Clinton and uh, George Bush senior. So, Needless to say, after all that, my, my knee deep in the evangelical and messianic uh, movement uh, situation was uh, encompassing my entire life. And so, you know, very familiar and intimate uh, to me, that that whole culture. Is one of your parents a, they were raised Jewish and the other one raised Christian? Is that how that works? Yeah. So uh, my uh, dad, he was uh, raised Jewish. Nominally, he did his bar mitzvah. Um, but he didn't take it seriously overall, uh, you know, even though it was just kind of a cultural thing until I was going to be born. My parents wanted to figure out what they wanted to raise me as. My dad was thinking Jewish. My mom, she wasn't really Christian by any measure. She just was nominally Christian, like many people in America are. Uh, and they wanted to figure out, OK, well, what should we do? So they went to this Nazarene church and then there was this debate. And my dad did a bunch of research and then he decided that um Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, and then he became a Christian first, and then my mom did after, I guess, and she was kind of funnily miffed because she was the one who was investigating that first, and then he's like, oh, you became Christian first? It was, it was a funny thing back then, but uh, yeah, so, so that's kind of what happened is that, you know, my coming to be was their impetus for making a decision about uh, wh what they wanted to go in a, in a direction with with their religious views, and and so that's what led to my experience growing up. Have you ever been in an interview before where you got grilled about your parents' religion this much? Um, I mean, yeah, in a sense where it's, uh, you know, talking about uh, my history. I've been on uh, Libertarian Christian Institute. I've been on uh, Biblical Anarchy with with Jacob Daniel Winograd. So I've, I've talked a bit about those things uh, on in those zones. <laughs> Definitely an interesting topic. And I, I didn't even know that you were raised at all Jewish. <clears throat> the last time I had interviewed you, but I remember I tried to make a joke and it would even 
possibly be a better joke now that I know you're a little bit Jewish. Are you Jewish? <laughs> I said, <laughs> yeah, I said that, that you seem very sharp, you're very motivated, but you seem motivated by spreading the good word. <laughs> right? Like I, I can imagine you're, anyone could advise you. You're a smart guy. If you wanted to get wealthy, there are ways to do that in the United States. And that's not necessarily exactly what you chose to do. Not saying you're not making money or that you can't make money from it, but there's probably a higher percentage likelihood in certain industries of making a lot of money than what you chose. Was your Jewish father upset with your career choice? <laughs> no, he he wasn't because, I mean, obviously I first did one of the most you know Jewish uh, professions. I was a lawyer, right? So we, we were there first, uh, but you know, being a, a scholar or economist, that kind of thing, that also fits the bill. And I, of course, yes, I did by choosing to be in this realm, I chose a challenge and I knew that going in, uh, there's, there was no sense of delusion about the fact that when I was starting to do Liberty stuff, cause you know, obviously I've been doing this for well over 15 years that I'm going up against a monster. So I've been grinding and working to wake people up into a variety of ways and, and mediums, knowing how difficult that is and would be. So, you know, no illusions about that, no illusions of grandeur. I just knew that these principles and these values were so important that if I did not participate in helping to change minds, uh, really bad things would happen. So I was like, okay, you know, I really need to be a part of this cultural shift uh, and, you know, to save as many possible people, you know, as we, as we can, you know, through this, through uh, having minds change toward property rights. And I think that is also very, you know, Jewish that you could say, because uh, young, young uh, Jewish men are, are brought up with the messianic uh, mindset, right? There's uh, still for, if you're Jewish and not Christian, they're still looking for their Messiah to rise up. Um, and of course, you know, otherwise there's always this sense of trying to overcome adversity and persecution that is ingrained in, in many of the Jewish holidays, you know, Hanukkah, for example. So I think that's a common trope. And that's a part of why, too, you see a lot of Jewish people in these type of intellectual endeavors that are about higher order thinking in economics or philosophy. It's it's not uncommon to see that. Okay. And I, I think it is worth mentioning Rothbard, Mises, I mean, you tell me, Jack, you know better than I do. Uh, Milton Friedman, I guess, would fall into that category, Ayn Rand even. But a lot of the, historically, the top thinkers in the world of small government, minarchism, anarchism, whatever you want to call it, libertarianism, have actually been Jewish. Definitely. And they're not the only ones, but yes, it's very easy to point out uh, some of the leading Jewish influences in uh, economics and in philosophy. And certainly, you know, there's been, especially because of the 20th century, and um, I would say the uh, academic Ashkenazi, there's been a lot of that growth, <laughs> you know, in, in people who are publishing and having scholarship in there who, who come from that bent and that background. Uh, but it's certainly just complementary to things that exist. It's it's never one or the other, you know, on both sides, for example, Karl Marx was also Jewish, uh, but would Marx have been as successful without the financial support of Engels and Engels taking on his uh, child that he had with his maid, you know, that kind of thing. So there there is certainly Jewish thought leadership, um, but it's certainly not the only part to uh, thought leadership and ideas and growth and everything else. 
And so sometimes people lose that in the process just because there are a disproportionate number of, of Jews in these types of things. Um, but it's certainly not limited to Jews by any measure. Yeah, I think up until the recent chairman of the Federal Reserve, the current, what is it, Jerome Powell, I think every chairman of the Federal Reserve prior was Jewish. So it's it's not to say that Jews in particular are libertarian, right? There, there are many libertarian Jews, uh, but by far, no. There are there are Jews of all flavors and all kinds, just like you have you know people who are German or British, and you can find every type of belief among those people, right? It's it's the same kind of thing. It's just that uh, because of the prominence of Jews in certain positions, higher positions, administrative positions they're going to be uh, noticed more or people are going to pick them out more uh, comparatively given the smaller population size. I have a feeling I know the answer to this question, but I think it's fascinating. I actually am 1% Jewish, <laughs> European Jew, according to Ancestry.com. Shalom. <laughs> Shalom. <laughs> um, have you ever had your Ancestry tested? Or I assume you have not, right? Oh, I have. I And not only that, I did it blind. I, I actually used a fake name, a fake date of birth. My goal was to, you know, whatever I did, I, you know, I didn't want them to have my direct stuff regardless for privacy, but uh, I wanted to test to see how good their system is, right? Because what's the best way to do that? Give them something that is not accurate to the person. So you just see how, how well their system works at checking your ancestry and also connecting you with relatives. And it was pretty incredible. I, you know, the 23 and me again there's lots of reasons not trust them and I completely understand you don't want your genetics given out there but for me I, I made a choice to do that because I was more curious about the uh, genetics studies and information that was in there and to me it was very valuable so I made a cost benefit calculation and I mean yeah it connected me to to real family it showed accurate relationships um, my uh, dad did his independently, you know, and he was basically hundred percent Ashkenazi and it showed, you know, up that on mine, you know, perfectly. So I was very impressed um, with it. And, uh, you know, I, I couldn't believe how accurate relatively it was. I mean, it's not absolutely perfect, but it's, it's pretty impressive when you think about it, you know, when you do a blind test like this, just to see, okay, how good are they going to, you know, nail this? Um, and they were connecting me to family who I knew you know, it was like, oh yeah, that is, you know, my first cousin or second cousin or whatever. So did you do ancestry.com or 23andMe? Just 23andMe. Um, although my wife is actually doing an ancestry too as well for fun. Uh, but, uh, it was just a 23andMe that I did. Tell us about your wife. <laughs> well, she's Chinese and Vietnamese. <laughs> That's the thing. I, 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 when, when I scheduled this episode with Jack and I knew we were going to be talking about Israel, I'm not the smartest guy in the world. I'm not. Won't claim to be. But I was like, maybe I should ask him if he's Jewish. <laughs> yeah, I don't care about that. That's, yeah. that's bother me. Yeah. So. In, in, in effect, <laughs> if I politely ask someone if they're Jewish and they got mad at me, then, you know, I don't know. What are you going to do? But I also said, okay, I got it. And your wife is, in fact, Asian, right? And you said, yeah. yes, she is actually a real she looks Asian. the part, too. So, you know, no surprise there. <laughs> but, yeah, she actually, uh, yeah, found out she's 80% Chinese, 20% Vietnam. Actually, now I'm thinking about it, was it 80-20? There was an update they did, and I can't remember now if it was 80-20 and now 90-10 after they did the update. I got to actually ask her again. But it's basically mostly Chinese and a little bit Viet. Was she born in the United States? 
Yeah, she she wasn't, you know, fresh off the boat. She was born over here. But her family does have that interesting story that they fled the persecution that was, you know, taking place in, in Vietnam. So her family, uh, you know, was a part of that kind of story of flight of people trying to escape, uh, you know, communist persecution and violence and forced conscription. So, you know, they had to hide uh, you know, from the rebels there and they, you know, that they were trying to conscript family and they'd have to hide them underground and stuff like that. And sometimes they would, you know, go into little bunkers or, you know, if they hear a plane coming overhead, they would try to protect themselves. So they, they lived that life. They lived that scary thing, you, you know, often only see in movies these days because, you know, Vietnam War is a bit far back now and everyone's kind of old from that. So, yeah, it, it's it's wild to think that that's not that far away. People trying to flee persecution uh, and, and government violence and bombings and, and this conscription, all that stuff. So, My wife is Cuban. She left Cuba in 2014. She is not a big fan of communism. She's very outspoken about it. I'm relatively new, to be honest. I'm 40, but I mean, I'm not claiming that I'm the most educated guy in the world or not trying to claim to be. <laughs> and so I'm relatively new to all, you know, figuring out who, which you know, uh, uh, minority groups or immigrant groups are the most opinionated. And I think I've got it down to Cubans are pretty wild. <laughs> Cubans are pretty fucking wild and outspoken when it comes to, of course, speaking out against communism. Um, I did, I forget who it was. I think it was, um, I forget. Someone has a Chinese wife. I think he has a podcast. What is it? The product, some libertarian guy, but, um, lot of those yeah and he said his <laughs> wife is chinese and that in the chinese culture it's not just communism but for many generations prior people didn't really talk that much about politics so my take is chinese are not quite as wild as cubans when it comes to being opinionated but i think vietnamese actually some of them are are, are have very strong opinions and are kind of like you alluded to very anti-communist yeah, I mean, there's also a part, too, that's called a self-selection bias. In America, we see the people who want to flee. The people who don't want to flee are still over in those countries. So inherently, the people who self-select themselves to come here tend to be those who are hardworking, who really don't like their living situation and who want prosperity and, and to have a better life. So it's, it is very common that when you see immigrants here who are coming because they're fleeing persecution, they are the ones who are going to be industrious. They are the ones who are going to be you know, suspicious of government because that's what they fled. They intentionally came here for that purpose. You know, they weren't, you know, rounded up and brought over on ships, regardless of whether they wanted to be here or not kind of thing. So yeah, the, it's very common that you'll see that attitude among those who are fleeing persecution or fleeing poverty. And, and they understand a little bit more that government is not uh, <laughs> their friend. <laughs> so, but th there is of course on the fringe side of this as well, uh, there's, there's two potential problems that come in afterward. There's some who then say, well, oh, because things are better in the U.S., then the U.S. government must be good, right? And then they miss some of the bad stuff. Wow, and then, wow, you're touching on a real serious topic there. Sorry to interrupt, <laughs> continue. <laughs> yeah, you're good. And then there's the, uh, the children of the immigrant problem. So sometimes you have immigrants that come in and they're just busting. They're, you know, they're working crazy hours because they're just trying to survive, right? They're for first gens. And then what do they do with their kids? They're, they're throwing them off to state schools to be turned into leftists. So the, the kids have parents who are absent because they're so busy grinding, trying to survive in this new world. And then the kids are being handed off to be brainwashed by their leftist teachers. And this is very common, especially for immigrants who are in deep blue states. 
And then those kids grow up to hate their parents. And then they're like, yeah, we need socialism and all this other stuff. So, you know, it's not all one or the other. These are just the common threads that you see with people who self-select to come over to the United States. My friend BJ Ferguson is always telling me, for some reason, we've talked about this multiple times. He's saying, you know, the Indians that you see here in the United States, everybody says they're all engineers and great students and good at math and all that stuff. And that's probably true for the most part, not all, but, you know, on average. But yeah. he's what he's describing, he didn't articulate it as well as you did, but it's a self-selecting process. There's probably plenty of Indians who are not big fans of doing math who still live in India, right? Right. The ones who don't pass their state exams because they have, you know, a very big kind of uh, college entrance civil service thing. So, yeah, I mean, everyone there is competing to try to get into the top. And there are plenty of people who don't get there. Now, again, it doesn't mean that, you know, maybe there isn't this kind of intellectual genetic drift thing that if you value those things trying to be an academic, you might have, you know, a gravitation toward people wanting you know, to, to have that installed in their kids. Uh, but certainly, right, when you're in the U.S., you have H-1B1 bases where people are coming over because they're like, oh, I'm going to be a software engineer or I'm a really intelligent person who, you know, has some creativity to, to apply at this new tech company. They're coming on over, right? You'll see that here in the U.S., and that will be the, the the bias of that sampling. You know, you won't see all the people who are just kind of, you know, regular Joe Schmoes from India because they're, they're not going to be likely coming over. Uh, but, you know, that there are always incentives when it comes to social structures. And if there's an incentive within a social structure for intelligence and for early literacy uh, and, and trying to succeed, then that is going to permeate, you know, and, and cause people to drift that way, right? To value people who are really serious students. And that, you know, you can see across any culture that I think had that historically, um, you know, you go back to uh, China and India where they had civil service exams. Again, this is not a promotion of those things in terms of the government. I'm just describing what is and what was was they had exams that were based on your literacy and understanding logic that you had to take in order to get into higher positions of, of government. Right. Imagine that, you know, aptitude test. So that drifted people toward wanting to study and to perform for those things so that they can move up in their social class and make more money, that kind of thing. So it, it exists and that, and that it, you know, when you value those things, you can over time increase people's uh, intelligence and literacy by rewarding those things um, and by supporting those things in early childhood development. Okay, Jack, I'm going to try to describe the Israel-Palestine um, conflict to you from my perspective, Okay. Then I'll get your feedback if that's all right. I'm relative. Keep in mind, I'm relatively new to this. It's only been even a few years that I ever put much thought into like what Zionism was or anything like that. So I'm, <laughs> I'm really not trying to act like I know everything. Although I may present myself like that sometimes. Um, in the late. 1800s, a movement started where Jews who had been persecuted for different reasons, I guess they'd be called pogroms or, you know, all sorts of different instances of those Jews being persecuted across the world and in a large part, um, different parts of Europe, had led to a group of uh, Jewish people starting to come to the Palestine area 
and that would have been Zionism. Now, I guess we could dive in. So if we wanted to focus on this right now, um, what is it that, I know this is a hell of a question, but my take would be that Jews are industrious and they're smart and they're business oriented. I forget, where was it? The African country. This is a different different conversation, but the, 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 the leader of the African company, country. I watched a movie about it. had a black guy as the, the main character. He was the dictator. And he just, at one point, he was like frustrated with all the Indians and he just kicked all the Indians out. Where was that? You gone? I forget. But somewhere he just kicked them all out only because he was frustrated. They were kind of the haves. And then the have-nots were kind of, you know, getting upset with the people who owned all the businesses and things. So then they just kicked them out. So my summary prior to 1900, of the reason that Jews were disliked and and these uh, uh, horrible instances occurred, my summary, Jack, you tell me, um, is that they were industrious. A lot of people aren't naturally industrious. If you're the one who's industrious, you own the buildings, you own the, you know, this and that. And then sometimes people just start kind of, I, I guess you could call it jealousy. But that's really, in effect, a summary in my perspective of what happened prior to 1900 what do you think i i I like that uh, interesting framing you know when it comes to being mad and industriousness i think i'd like to take it even further back and give even more specifics about what happened and the jewish success uh, that took place stemming from the middle ages Um, but just to give you a sense of of kind of you know, where this led to and from um, after 70 a.d when the romans destroyed the second temple. Um, Jewish people were captive in various ways with the Romans, the Byzantines, you know, the Arabs, crusaders, and and various sources, depending on the time period and empire. And with that, there came, of course, with a majority population, right? Whenever you have whoever's the current ruler, right? There's that favoritism toward that group. It could be Muslim, could be Catholic. It could be, you know, whatever the Romans were, right? That majoritarian sentiment of course, historically would come at the expense of those who are considered lesser people or or lesser status people. And when that took place, different people were, of course, treated as second class citizens and were possibly either taxed more or told they couldn't be in certain professions or were kept out of government roles and the like. And this type of persecution, uh, you know, went pretty far and wide. In fact, you know, when we think about the um, stars that were put onto uh, you know Jews in Germany, right? That wasn't something that actually started there. Um, actually, in in Muslim countries, uh, you know, introduced by the Umayyad Caliphate, Caliph Umar II in the early eighth century, um, Jews were required to wear a yellow badge on their headgear neck and a piece of lead that was weighed uh, three grams with the word dimmy on it around their necks. And women were required to wear a red and a black shoe and have a small bell on their necks or shoes. What did dimmy mean? So, so dimmy is basically a secondary uh, status. It's like a, a Islamic status that's given to Jews and Christians um, and Hindus. Uh, basically, if you are someone who is not of the people of the book in Islam, then you're going to have to be in a position that that shows that you are uh, under occupation right that you're that you're controlled and so that often would have either symbolic and or tax statuses you'd have an extra tax if you wanted to 
be free essentially to just you know live your life and practice your religion. You have to have to pay something extra other than people who are uh, Muslim. So this this type of persecution, you know, is is certainly not modern. It's it's very old. And if you go back um, to even 1182, King Philip II of France expelled the Jews from there. Um, in 1096, the Knights of the First Crusade they unleashed a wave of violence uh, under the name of the Holy Roman Empire. They had massacres and worms, Trier and Metz. Uh, there was this kind of interesting thing that was labeled against Jews called blood libel in the Middle Ages and around the 12th century. Uh, they said that Jews used the blood of babies uh, to make their Passover unleavened bread. Right. So this idea that, you know, Jews basically take blood from children to make their food was this common trope to demonize them and to justify persecution. And these types of ideas kept spreading in 1290. King Edward I of England, he had an edict that expelled all Jews from Jews from England. Um, the Jews were expelled from France in the 14th century and from Germany in the 1350s. And one of the biggest expulsions in 1492, actually on the day, you know, when uh, Columbus sailed the ocean blue, uh, Spain actually. I, I did know. I did know that one. I did know that one. That's a good one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they stayed. They expelled uh, the Jews there. They said either you have to convert to Christianity, uh, get out of here, or we're going to kill you. And nearly a hundred thousand Jews had to flee. Um, some of them up, you know, to Norway. It was it was pretty pretty wild. Um, and of course, that continued. 1569, Jews were expelled from the papal states. So what happened during this time in, in the Middle Ages, especially these types of persecutions, was that the Christians were not allowed to practice what they called usury, but it was just basically lending, right? They're like, hey, you can't have interest, right? But Jews could. Jews were allowed to loan. So because Jews could actually lend when others were not allowed to, Jews started to have an advantage economically in finance and banking. There are in other trades as well, but when you have a government-created monopoly uh, through both culture, uh, you know, religion, and the government, as we all know, it benefits the person who has that legal monopoly or benefit, right? So the Jews started to get into finance in the Middle Ages because of this dynamic of them not being allowed to be in many different positions, right? You know, over time they were uh, not allowed to, you know, be in, in certain professions or be in government. And then they're like, okay, well, we have a limited set of things that we could possibly do. And so one of the most lucrative things to do in that case was, was money lending. And that's where you get that uh, archetype of Jews being these guys who rub their hands together and and they watch your money, right? Because they are the ones who are allowed to do this banking and and, and the the monetary policy and, the, and the, the lending when others were not. So, of course, that creates some stereotypes, and they're not helped at all uh, by a famous person named uh, Martin Luther, who is known as the person who put up the 95 Theses against the Catholic Church. Um, he's the one who started the Protestant Reformation. And he wrote a book basically titled Lies of the Jews, and that book demonized Jews heavily, basically said that they need to be you know, burned, have their synagogues burned, that they're basically you know, devils who will destroy everything. And that book was a part of what continued to foster the culture of Jews being demonized up even until uh, you know, Hitler's time. So you know, this kind of uh, 
persecution and this and this type of in-group, out-group situation built up this long-term desire to have a safe place for Jews to be. And as you, you know, correctly noted, you know, with the Zionist Congress, they came together and they started to make plans about coming back to Israel, which was really always something that was wanted because that is the promised land. So it's not something new. That's that's always just been something that Jews have wanted to have religiously. But it seemed like as if, thanks to the success of Jews stemming from the Middle Ages and their success in business out of that and, you know, post-expulsions, that they would have a meaningful shot at being able to get on over there and the political will to be able to make that happen because of all the things that were happening with, with Jewish persecutions in Europe and people being like, yeah, you know what? We don't really want uh, Jews here in the first place, as was very well expressed in Germany. <laughs> so, uh, you know, all things coalesce together at once to create this opportunity to create um, a state for uh, Jewish people. And so I think that gives a little bit more backdrop as to what, uh, you know, people were upset at the Jews about, because again, during this time, Jews were not, were not the political elite that, you know, it's not like, oh, we had a Jewish empire, like you had the British empire with all these different outposts. You didn't have the French empire with all these different places. Jews didn't have anything like that. They, you know, they've been basically out of luck for thousands of years. <laughs> so, so it's an interesting dynamic. Um, you know, in a comparative, you know, we talk about population sizes, uh, but here we are. And now we we have this situation in Israel uh, where there is a Jewish state and there's new conflicts that, that come about because of that. But even that has its own other special things to unravel. So around 1900 or so, the Zionist movement, or it could be plural movements, I, you know, I don't know, um, was progressing toward that part of the world, and Jewish people were buying up land. Um, well, I should say that at that time, in what is known as Palestine, there was already Jewish people there, there was uh, Muslim people, and there was Christian people there, and relatively things were going relatively okay. Would you agree with that? So that's where it gets a little bit tricky and complicated because there was relative peace, you could say. Uh, there certainly what were not no acts of violence. Um, you know, there were, you know, things that took place, attacks that took place uh, sporadically here and there, especially, you know, in the mid-1800s, uh, going from Syria over, you know, to uh, Lebanon, and, you know, it was it was kind of a, a period where the Ottoman Empire's presence was just more of the focus. Right. So if you want to think of it in terms of what are people worried about there, they were more so worried about the Ottoman Empire's influence and the militarization and the taxes. And what that ties to actually is is kind of what pre is a precursor to all this you know thinking when we're talking about, OK, who actually was living where, who owned what, and how and why. We have to go back to the Ottoman system and what was actually going on with the Ottoman land code of 1858. And the Ottoman Empire, they wanted to have as many people as possible taxed and conscripted, you know, where they could. Because um, that's the nature of government, right? They want to <laughs> expropriate people, their bodies, and uh, their properties. And that 1858 code required landowners to register their ownership 
But many of the people who were around and, and farming didn't want to do this, right? Because again, if, if you did it, you'd get on the government's radar and then you'd be subject to military service and of course, heavy taxes. Hmm. So Okay. Okay. So, so, so there was a lot of land, of course, in Palestine, much of it, I guess you could say was kind of uninhabitable maybe, but of the the land that people lived on, much of it had not been, and I'm using air quotes, we're both anarchists, properly documented with the state really, right? And not just not properly documented, but the people who were documenting things had this kind of crony system um, that favored a smaller group of people. So there was this thing called the Musha system, and that form of land ownership in the Ottoman Empire was where people had communal kind of ownership, where there wasn't necessarily one family or clan that actually had homesteaded land and would and would have the absolute rights to that. They were there was often this type of shared grazing crop thing where they would have rotation every certain number of years of who had the rights to actually go on the land and try to grow something. And as you can imagine, as happened with the Jamestown colony, when you have collective ownership, uh, there's no incentive to have growth because if you sow, someone else reaps. If you try to let it lie fallow the ground so you can actually have nutrients get re, you know populated in there, there's no point to it because someone else is just going to grow anyway. And so about 70% of the land um, in that area was Musha in 1918 which means that, you know, it was under this kind of system where these people would work the lands, but there would be a landlord who had a crony deal with the Ottoman government. And even some people in the Ottoman government themselves would give themselves titles to vacant land, right? They would issue themselves deeds uh, that they didn't actually homestead or have, right? So you had this kind of weird feudalistic borderline system between the heavy taxes and these landlords and people having to pay them in shares of crops. And it was really a big mess, right? And as you can imagine, as this area was not very arable and it's a desert area, on top of everything with droughts and crop issues and bird issues and all sort of stuff, people were having it really rough. You know, they were they were impoverished frequently. Um, they struggled to survive frequently. Uh, these people who would, you know, live in the mountains and then come try to use their mooshes. And they were just relatively poor. You know, there, there, there's not really much that they can do outside for other work. This is not a highly industrialized area. People were suffering. And over time, some of those lands begot, uh, got to be uh, put together and then repackaged and sold, as you noted, to some Jewish buyers. Because before the state of Israel, the way to come settle is either you have to homestead or you buy land. And so the Jews would come and they would buy land. And there was even um, a, a Jewish fund specifically to buy land for Jews and let them uh, lease it out kind of thing. So before the state of Israel, we had Zionism in its peaceable form, which is just people buying and moving, right? That's that's totally normal, just like you might buy a, you know, a, a condo at some other place or, so, or somewhere, you know, in the Caribbean or something like that or another state. People were just doing that kind of thing. And about 1945, Jewish buyers had technically legal ownership about mandates total land. I'm sorry. For some reason, Jack, we, we um, broke up for one moment. You said in about 1945, what was it? 
Sure. In 1945, Jewish buyers had legal ownership about 5.67% of the mandate's total land area, the British mandate, because after the Ottoman Empire effectively fell in 1922, the British were kind of managing things. But again, it was still a huge mess. Um, you still had the cronyism and the and the mooshes and things like that going on. So if you look at the census that was done, uh, it's called the 1931 Census for Palestine. There's about a million people consisting of about 760,000 Muslims, 91, 92,000 Christians, and 174,000 Jews about. And about 85% were earning a living in the rural sector, right? Uh, and, you know, if, if you weren't doing that, there was a number of people who were deriving their livelihood from the rents of the agricultural land, um, a much smaller portion under, you know, 10%. And those were the political elites. So, as you noted, you know, over time, there uh, were people who were buying more and more of these, you know, Dunhams, which, you know, is, is basically this kind of plot of land, thousand square feet plot of, plot of land. There's about two million of those bought. Um, so it's it's really something to think about when you're we're trying to describe who owns what and why, right? Because from a libertarian perspective, we don't sit here and say, well, if you plant a flag, you own a continent, right? And we don't sit here and say, well, just because you walk across ground, you own everything. And just because you let your goat eat some grass or wheat doesn't mean you own a thousand square miles of land either. So we have to be realistic about what this situation was. And in truth, it was rather that the Ottoman Empire was the core root of the struggles of the people who were living there who were Arab. The Ottoman Empire was really what screwed these people, along with the British just trying to figure out what to do about it. But certainly this collective ownership and cronyism is actually what truly distanced the people who live there from any meaningful ownership uh, over the land through, through cultivation and building. But the effect of the Jewish presence coming in is itself something to also factor in in terms of their economic benefit, because while everything was you know pretty rough between you know the, the famines and the riots of of people being upset about uh, you know the different values of their currencies going up and down with wars and and uh, you know with changing conditions with the government and with the weather, you know the the Jews who are coming down were bringing with them the Jew Jews control the weather though, don't they? <laughs> I mean, maybe they could if they did cloud seeding, but okay. sorry, to, sorry to interrupt. <laughs> oh, you're good. You're good. Um, so, you know, the, the Jews themselves are bringing down opportunities and jobs and, and we're developing the land. So there is something that is it's interesting that, that I think a lot of people leave out, but it ties into something that you had mentioned on another show you're on. You said, why did BLM share a picture of the of Hamas and paragliders coming down, right? What does BLM have to do with that? And the truth is, is that the history here is a very class warfare history when you think about the people who were living there versus the what they perceive as the cronies um, who were the landlords and the Ottoman Empire. So for them, they were in this class warfare mentality. And some of them were frustrated, the Jews too, being like, oh, look at this. They get to come down and have, you know, prosperity and all this other stuff. And we're getting screwed by whether it's the Ottoman government or the landlords or the weather or the British government, you know, they felt frustrated by that. And so there was this kind of 
mentality of of what you would see similar to BLM's kind of uh, framing, you would see this mentality of anti-colonialism, right? That's what underpins this all is this class warfare anti-colonialism because they're like, okay, here's these Europeans again. They're just coming in and they're here to steal our stuff and they're the devils and we're, you know, the righteous, that kind of mentality. But of course, that anger was misplaced because the the truth was is that the people who were, who were screwing them out of property rights was the Ottoman Empire government and then the British government and still managing to keep some of those structures ongoing. So we can't really even begin to digest who has what rights based on you know whatever until we actually look at well who actually homesteaded what, and you'll find that by and large. Most of the land was not homesteaded. It wasn't developed and clear to the state of nature with structures built on it. There were certainly towns, absolutely. There were certainly tents. There were certainly people living there. And there certainly were people who, you know, for reasons we can get to later, had to either leave or be expelled from what was an actual homestead. But there is a collectivism that underpins this, no different than you see from the collectivism of the Marxist leftists who have the anti-colonial mindset in America as relates to the black experience or Native Americans. And in some ways, there are a lot of parallels. Uh, You know, I I think that when you actually take a look at the history of of America as, as relates to Natives, you can actually draw a lot of comparisons to the situation. And I think that it starts to become clear that this ideology, though, if it's only held in its collectivist mindset, as in, if I'm Arab, therefore, I own this whole region, right, regardless of of anything. And the same thing for, for Jews, right? If you say, oh, just because you're Jewish means I own all region, you come into a very big philosophical problem, which is that you're now collectivizing ownership and using these collective pronouns saying it's our land, right? Well, did you homestead it? No. So that is where I think a lot of these conflicts arise. And, you know, we can get into more if you have more questions, but that, that's kind of the backdrop leading up to this point with the state of Israel's creation. A critic of the BLM movement in the United States could say they rely at their core. They are what they say is they're speaking up against like police brutality, against young black men, things like that. A critic of the BLM movement could say that a lot of those statistics are manipulated and that although yes maybe you know african americans are on average killed by police more often than whites or hispanics that is true the numbers aren't near what they're trying to make it out to be for the sake of all this violence in 20 the summer of 2020 the black like black lives matter protests um you know all across the country happened in the United States. Um, so that, that would be what kind of a critic of the BLM movement in the United States could say. Do you think a similar type of argument could be made against the hashtag uh, free Palestine, the open hair prism, a lot of the, the things that we hear, you know, the, the, the term or the vernacular used around this type of a uh, situation. I, I don't know if I'm articulating my question very well, but do you think a similar type of argument could be made against the free Palestine crowd? 
So th- this is a great question. And I just want to preface this as always, because no matter what, when it comes to these types of topics, it's very easy for people to get caught up in straw beds. So let's be clear. Uh, I am an ANCAP voluntarist. I don't support any states. I wish for all governments to become a libertarian order and to move toward restoration of property rights. So let, let's just get that out of the way. And, and none of what I would advocate for has anything to do with religious mandates. I don't think that has any bearing on libertarian philosophy, any type of manifest destiny from a God or, or whatever else. So when I frame this and I, and I think about the, the critiques here, we're, we're kind of in a rock and a hard place because whatever angle you take, if you do not take an angle that is strictly about property rights and homestead norms, you can very quickly rationalize anything, right? So what I, I'd like to make this comparison with the U.S. Native American compa- comparison specifically, you know, which is also a part of the BLM stuff, right? The U.S. government forcibly removed tons of Native Americans uh, off land. Cherokee, 16,000. Chickasaw, 6,000. Choctaw, 15,000. Creek, 22,000. Seminole, 3,000. Apache, 9,000. Cheyenne, 11,000. I can keep going on and on. But basically, U.S. government had a policy of removing tons of Native Americans, and they put them onto reservations, right? And on these reservations, they were forced to stay there by armed U.S. guards. And people might be like, hmm, okay, well, these people were forcibly removed from lands that, you know, even if they didn't own everything that was communal, they certainly owned the lands where their homes were and, and where they actually set stuff up. So how do you deal with a situation where you have these Native American tribes who are in a continuum of removal from where they were, their children and their children's children and so forth are still there. The same government that removed them is still in continuity to today. It's not like the U.S. federal government's suddenly gone. Uh, these are the same people in terms of children, the same governments. And the same thing is said of those who are Arab, who uh, who are either left their homes or forcibly removed in Israel, right? You have them saying, well, it doesn't matter who's here. You could be second generation, you could be third generation. Uh, you're still a refugee. You're still, you, you still have the right to the land, even though you technically were not there in 1948, right? Because it is, there's a huge number of people now who are living who were not back then. And in fact, the population has, has doubled, um, which of course makes it tough to say for people who are like, this is a genocide. You know, when your population doubles, it's hard to say that that's a genocide. Certainly there's there's people being killed, uh, but genocide, uh, you know, doesn't really match that that definition. So we have to sit, take a step back and think about what the solutions are that people are proposing and, and critique them piece by piece, right? So when people say, oh, well, maybe you need a two-state solution, I think that that's more statism and is as equally ridiculous as saying, well, the Cherokee need to have a part of Georgia carved out for them. Uh, because of the U.S. government removing them, right? And we need to create a, a Cherokee state in Georgia. Or to say that, okay, well, the federal government, they're bad, a bunch of you know white colonizers, so maybe we should have a council of Cherokee, Chickasaw, Choctaw Creek, and Seminole. They should be the ones who run Congress instead, right? It'd be equally ridiculous. You'd be like, okay, that's absolutely nuts. Why? Well, I don't want more statism. And certainly swapping out rulers doesn't make my life any freer. Certainly doesn't bring about property rights. So that same kind of thinking, I think, applies to what ha- to what specifically is happening with those in Gaza and the West Bank. We cannot have a solution that involves creating more state structures 
especially when someone tries to downplay it as saying, oh, it's a democracy, right? They're like, oh, well, some people just want a democratic state. And I say, um, okay, besides democracy itself uh, not being an ethical thing, I think you'd pr probably want to think about what they would be voting for, right? And even just recently, um, there was an independent Arab world for research and development study. They did a, a public opinion uh, poll and they found, you know, with the, the Brazette University West Bank, they found that over three quarters of Palestinians support Hamas and the attacks and they support jihad and the different brigades that are attacking people. Right. So, again, this is not to collectivize all the people there and say, oh, you know, you're all bad or anything like that. But if you if you think about that from the political standpoint, you say, well, we're going to create a democracy. And then you walk through your logic. And you say, OK, and what are they going to vote for? Oh, well, they're going to vote for for more violence. It's kind of insane, right? And so these people who will say this, like, oh, yeah, they just want a democracy. It's kind of nuts, right? And and these same people would say the same thing of Zionists who are political, political Zionists, right? If you said, oh, no, the political Zionists just want democracy, th these people would have no problem saying political Zionists would vote for expansion of the, the Israeli state, right? It would be, it'd be obvious to them. Oh, duh, of course. As the political Zionists would vote for Israel expanding until it gets to the original biblical Israel. So we have what I think is this strange bias with the situation where, for some reason, Israel is considered e uniquely evil and uniquely dangerous while ignoring the rest of the totality of everyone and the other factors. And so I think that if we're to actually dive into what needs to be done to avoid more murder and consequences of violence— we need to be thinking in terms of a libertarian order, and we need to be thinking in terms of how do we incentivize peace? And a big part of incentivizing peace is free trade. A part of incentivizing peace can even involve restitution. It can even involve a repatriation of sorts of people who maybe have a family and a job in Israel being brought back and having restitution, those kinds of things. But we cannot foolishly believe uh, here, as in we, as in I say this as an advocacy, that if you just give someone else a government where those people are clearly supporting violence anyway, that that's going to be more peace. And the you know number of peace talks that have happened with Israel already have been innumerous. I mean, it, it's it's really kind of wild when you walk through it uh, because it's just it's had so many different failures and of course different people got to point fingers and say oh it's it's the jews fault that the peace talks failed oh it's the muslims fault but at the end of the day if you're if the people in political leadership their core values are not about libertarian values it doesn't matter what the peace talks are they're gonna be for their form of status violence and you know i, I and for those who are still uncertain about this you know the israeli government they had a disengagement from from gaza 2005 and in 2006 the Hamas was voted in majority, you know, 65 seats out of 132. So it, it's it should not come as a surprise that with a, a people there who are in Gaza who have been for so long told that the Jews are colonial invaders, uh, that they are oppressors, that they're de devils and demons, that that psychology will underpin whatever political solution you try to say if you try to create another state, right? That's That's really where... That needs to be brought to bear and to you know really be focused on because some people will try to downplay that and they'll just say, well, river to the sea, just some people mean a secular whatever. And it's like, no, who? what do the political leadership actually think? What do they say about 
the state of Israel. And, you know, for example, in 2018, when Trump said Jerusalem is, is the capital of Israel, PLO is like, okay, we're done recognizing the state of Israel as, as being legitimate, right? And I agree with not recognizing a state, of course, but again, we're talking about what their views are as to what should happen with the Israeli government, what should happen with this, with the Israeli people. So there is no such thing as a, a peaceable or peaceful solution without a cultural change. And that cultural change can happen, but it has to happen through peaceable trade. And I think that that is, is going to be a key part of um, moving toward peace. And anything else is a distraction uh, from that. It's a distraction from the reality that until you change the culture, the, the violence will just continue. All right. I've got a few questions here. Is Trump the most Zionist president ever? <laughs> I don't know if he's the most Zionist president ever. I'd have to, I'd, I'd really would have to think long and hard about that. Um, mo most, I would say to a degree, most presidents had some level of, of favoritism toward Israel uh, in, in recent times. Of course, you know, Obama, not so much, but, but even when Obama left office, I think he signed the $4 billion per year contract or something like that, right? So, I mean, he was maybe rhetorically sometimes anti, or not not even anti-Israel. How, how anti-Israel was he? Uh, he was pretty anti-Israel in the way that he, he described um, the Israeli government. It was always one-sided um, in, in terms of saying that, you know, it's like more like on the lines of occupation um, and, and that they're the uh, bad guys essentially and again israeli government is definitely the bad guys when it comes to being a government they are they are bad guys uh they're just not the only bad guys <laughs> because it's it's everybody who's trying to create a state there is a bad guy and the violence uh will not you know be reduced by empowering bad more bad guys uh in the name of democracy okay um do you agree with the 750,000 number when it comes to the number of people who are displaced in, I think, uh, 48? Is that when it was? Do you agree with that number? I think most people, they get that number from Benny Morris, who was a Jewish uh, historian. He wrote that, you know, hoping that it would actually bring peace, uh, that, you know, by saying, oh, some of those people were forcibly removed by the Israeli uh, army and and therefore you know we're we're trying to be uh, uh we're trying to take ownership of that um so I, I think that that number is probably true in terms of people who have in the total number of people who either left or were forced out but that all of them were violently forced out is I don't agree with that there is actually um a huge movement of people who left for several different reasons uh one of the reasons being that they thought okay you know if we just get out of here. Um, we'll avoid the conflict and we'll just come back in a couple weeks after, uh, you know, Egypt has killed all the Jews and then we'll, we'll get back the land and we'll go back to normal. Um, some people were afraid of themselves being considered enemies uh, as well. They thought that, okay, if we stay here, it looks like we're joining the Israelis, like we're, we're supporting them. And so they left out of fear of being considered traitors, uh, you know, to, to the broader Arab and Islamic community. And then there were some, of course, that were forcibly removed by the Israeli government as well, regardless of that. Um, so it, it's a mixture of things. And it's a really unfortunate situation for the people there because they themselves also were stuck in a rock and a hard place because they're being told, oh, you better leave um, or, or, you know, because 
there's going to be some warfare here, but don't worry, we'll, we'll, we'll get the Jews out of here. And, you know, to those that may be on the edge, like, eh, I don't really, you know, whatever, I don't care, you know, but they're concerned about their safety and they also leave. Now they also get screwed too, can't come back in. So I think it, it's a really tragic situation. And it was, it was uh, horrible all around is really what it boils down to. It, it was just horrible all around um, because of, of course, the Arab League coming into uh, Israel to try to fight and take them down, right? Egypt, Iraq, Jordan, Lebanon, Saudi Arabia, Syria, and Yemen. So it, it's something that is a product of war. Um, and what happened there, you know, it, it's just, that's what happens when people keep buying into statism and keep trying to create states. You know, they, they keep creating these displacements and people suffering and dying. And it's, it's you know, a kind of interesting thing on that tangent too, right? When we talk about the these uh, displacements, th there is a Muslim equivalent to Israel, which is Pakistan, right? Pakistan was actually created out of a partition with India by the British, right? In the same way that, you know, they're sitting here at the UN, okay, how are we going to cut up these empires, these former empires? So that, uh, that uh, split actually led to widespread violence against Hindus from the Muslims with about a million people killed and probably about 14 million people, maybe more displaced, right? Now, when you think about those numbers, it's kind of nuts, right? You're like, oh my gosh, like that's way more people displaced and killed than what's happening in Israel. But nobody really cares about that, right? No one's like, oh my gosh, the Hindus, <laughs> you know what I mean? They, they don't sit there and go, oh, I can't believe this. These are permanent refugees. And even, you know, recently there's like 1500 Hindus who are coming over to India to try to get um, asylum. Uh, because of persecution in, in Pakistan that still goes on to this day because, again, you, you can't exactly openly practice Christianity there. <laughs> so it's, it's not very favorable. So you have a, a, an ethnic religious state of Pakistan, the kind of sister equivalent to Israel, with far more violence and displacement and continue to this day, but nobody cares. And the reason why nobody cares is because it's not being used as a uh, political tool. And if you want to understand the political tool, you have to understand the UNRWA. So the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, right, for Palestine is what it's called. It's a UN organization that was created in uh, 1949 to provide relief, right? And we know this as libertarians and, and people who think about libertarian economics, that if you create a system of welfare and jobs, right? You're going to create dependence. And so this organization and, you know, being funded by many countries and expending billions of dollars employs 30,000 plus people, many of whom are actually living in the area. And they have also an international staff as well on top of it. I mean, their budget in 2020 was $806 million. In any other situation, we would be like, oh, okay, we understand those incentives. Um, you have an organization dedicated to just giving people stuff and giving people jobs the whole way and the whole time sustaining them, that's going to create right a dependency and this, this group of people who are like paid to be activists, essentially. So the UN, right, in any other context, everyone would be like, yeah, the UN, they're they're the agenda 2030. They're the they're part of the Great Reset, right? They're they're literally the people who are trying to create this new world order. But yet people will sit there and, and point to them as the good guy for providing relief. And the relief often, of course, is used as, as political uh, leverage. It's it's going to the uh, political leadership there and is 
you know, in any other context, it'd be like, duh, of course, right? As Ron Paul said, foreign aid is the poor being stolen from to be to give to the rich of, of foreign countries, right? In any other context, it'd be so obvious that in a whole agency devoted to basically giving aid and jobs to people in that area, in Gaza and West Bank, that would create perverse incentives. And no one has even, I think, I haven't seen anybody even mention these things, right? Not Walter Block, as far as I know, not Ben Shapiro, not any of these people that people normally look to when you think, you know, economic thinking, okay, what are the incentives? What happens? You know, what's going to, what is that going to breed, right? It's obvious when it comes to Israel, right? When people say, oh yeah, Israel's getting $300 billion. Like, oh, what incentives does that create, right? If they're getting all this money for war, right? It's it's obvious, but oh, on the flip side, oh, well, what does that create for people that are being permanently labeled as refugees? So it's a... It's this tragic situation where these groups of people have been uh, essentially used as tools for a long time. They've been used as tools by the elite under the Ottoman Empire. They've been used as you know political bargaining tools. They've been used to create this Marxist, uh, you know, leftist kind of um, messaging where you know they're they're gathering together the anti-colonial mindset, and instead of it being about liberty and about uh, property rights and restoration, it is it is just a permanent political tool uh, for them to create just another state, right? And so, you know, that's really where I want to get people to to walk back from. You know, I, I want to say and, and show the things that gets people out of this mindset that it's just, oh, you know, Israel's just all bad in terms of every single thing they do. And there's absolutely no reason for, for them to be there. They're just a bunch of European colonizers, which again, if you say that you're a, you're a, a white as an European American, you know, the fingers are pointing right back at you. You have that same exact history, you know what I mean, as it relates to both Native Americans and of course, black people who were actually brought over in the slave trade and, and the things that happened with uh, Jim Crow laws, you know, black codes, uh, redlining, the war on drugs, you can keep going on and on to this day. You know, that's a whole thing I can get into, but it, it really does no service to anyone to take on the situation from these collectivist Marxist talking points, right? Where it's like free Palestine and from the river to the sea and all stuff. And then the people counter that be like, oh, well, people say a rets Israel. And that means, you know, Israel should be from the river to the sea and stuff. It's like, stop, like you got to get out of this, you know, what is for Americans, the, the red versus blue nonsense. It's the red versus blue of the Middle East. And until people start actually thinking through the specifics of who did what, who are the actors, who actually has a real claim, who actually homesteaded, who did what, you're never going to get anywhere. You're never going to get anywhere with with any type of meaningful peace because the idea there is then to just swing the pendulum from one side to the other. It's like, oh, okay, well, all or nothing. We got to support this government. Oh, no, we got to support this government, right? Just like with Russia and Ukraine, right? The Russian government is not good. <laughs> Just because Ukrainian government is is bad, it was a money laundering operation, uh, you know, with Burisma and everything else that they happened with the, the corrupt judicial system, that doesn't make the Russian government also good, right? And, and I think that's been a big flaw of some of these major institutes. Uh, some of these big libertarian institutes have gotten so tunnel visioned about the West versus the East and these different types of groups, they've lost sight of the fact that in these other countries, they have just as much evil with government theft and murder and histories of violence, right? Like even, you know, I, I think of um, Saudi Arabia, right? In Saudi Arabia, when you talk about persecution, people say, oh, well, how are Arabs treated in, in um, 
you know, Israel versus how are Jews treated in the Gaza? I mean, in Saudi Arabia, right? Women have no freedom to travel, get a passport. They have no freedom to choose their marriage partner. They have no freedom to work. They couldn't even legally drive until June, 2018. And even that's still, you know, restricted kind of, it's like, you know, frowned upon. Um, the justice system and, and discrimination is, is rampant. Uh, the political life for women is, you know, basically non-existent, no freedom to practice religion, uh, no freedom of, of physical expression. And on top of that, you know, the, the Saudi government has Sharia law where if you um, are a, a convert and your father is Muslim, you're going to get beheaded. Uh, the the minority uh, political group, um, the Sunnis, they're persecuted and they'll literally cut their heads off and, and put them on crosses to say, hey, if you try to rebel, we'll kill you. Right. I mean, they literally still have laws that say if you practice witchcraft, whatever it is, you know, you'll get beheaded. So there's these countries that are surrounding that are the complete opposite of, of what we consider Western values of having a due process, civil liberties and all these things. And no one cares right in the moment. Like nobody cares about about that type of, of violence. They only selectively pick and choose based on, oh, well, if this is in the current Western government interest and that's then that means they're all bad. Right. Instead of being like, whoa, 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 whoa. It's more complex than that. And there are multiple bad actors on multiple sides. And the only way we're getting out of here is by promoting individual property rights. Okay. Now, do you think the treatment of the people in Gaza and the West Bank, the uh, treatment by the Israeli government, do you think it is exaggerated by many as to how bad they have it there? So that's like a complicated one because, you know, what's always funny with that, right? In any other situation, right, it, when the Israeli government, they they publish something, they'll say, you know, like, remember the, the, the 40 beheaded babies and things like that? Mm-hmm. Everyone's skeptical. Everyone's immediately like, oh, yeah, okay, we'll see if that turns out true, right? The, the skepticism is there, and it should be, right? Anything that the Israeli government publishes should be immediately looked at with skepticism. But when you ask other people, hey, okay, where are you getting your information about how many people are dying, who's who in Gaza? They'll say, oh, uh, the Gazan authorities. Or, oh, uh, the UN, right? And you'd be like, wait a second. So you, you just, you're taking that value and you're just going to regurgitate it unflinchingly without any scruples. Just, okay. Oh, you said that's how many people died? Okay. And you just report it. That's what these people do. It's nuts to me. It's absolutely nuts. Okay. They literally just take it at face value. So do I think that uh, people who are innocent and babies being killed? Oh, of course. Right. I mean, they, we have more coverage now thanks to decentralized means, right, in terms of getting footage or getting video out. Of course, there was an internet uh, outage issue that happened in the recent weeks um, in that area. So, of course, there's tougher things. But people do also have this kind of uh, missing picture, too. They, they sometimes will see Gaza and they'll see a bomb building. And it's tragic. And that's horrible. But then they think that's the whole of Gaza, right? Gaza is actually a full city with tons of people living in it. It's very crowded, but it's a, it's an otherwise normal city with like regular people that you might think you're walking, you know, talking to regular Americans, right. And, and all different types of clothes and all different types of backgrounds. So it's, it is far more complicated than people want to make it out to be. There are people who are innocently killed. Absolutely. Is, is this like every single thing in, in the Gaza at least from what I can see, no. Is there potential talks of pushes like, oh, like, should we turn this to glass? So, yeah, there's some sick people who say that. But is that reality? No, that's not exactly uh, here what's happening. So we have to be scrutinizing on both ends, right? When it, If you 
would be scrutinizing about the Israeli government, which you should be absolutely. And I don't, that's why you don't ever see me like talk about this stuff on the reg, because when it comes to anything like this, where I'm not there, I'm not on the ground. I don't have a, a close contact who's doing the on the ground reporting and it's, it's walled off. I can't be sure. I can't, I'm not going to sit there and claim one thing or the other. Cause I can't be sure. Okay. But a lot of people who their job is to report these things and they're aggregating AP new, and Reuters newswires. They're just reporting whatever it is as, as if it's true. This next question is kind of a two-parter, but it is, so you answer it to the best of your ability. In your opinion, how many different types of Zionists are there? And the second part of the question is, are you a Zionist? I think, I mean, there's just the two major ones. That's I thought I think, and, you know, if there's more, I'd be surprised. But the two major ones are just Zionists who want to uh, move back to a biblical Israel. They believe that Jews, you know, should live there and that's their homeland kind of thing. And then there's a Zionist that's the political Israel, which is they want to have an Israeli uh, government. They want a state as well. Um, so I don't consider myself either. I'm not um, particular, you know, in any certain way, like, oh, you have to move anywhere. That's that's a freedom of, of choice and association issue in the same way that, you know, if you want to move to the free state project, you should move to the free state project, right? That's, that's your libertarian Zionism there. So, I, I just I think it's more just a personal preference, but I understand why Jews wanted to do that. Like, it, you know, what I mean, it makes sense that after so much persecution in the history of every single place wants to, uh, you know, destroy you. Um, yeah, you, you kind of want a place where it's like, OK, for real, I, I we just could use a little piece from from, you know, being persecuted. And, you know, it often forgotten there, too, is is the um, Jews in Israel are also refugees. Right. The. Uh, surrounding Arab countries after Israel was created had mass pogroms and expulsions. In fact, more Jews were uh, either directly kicked out or had to flee than the number of Arabs who had to leave um, in modern day Israel because of the uh, hatred of the Israeli state being created. It, you know, it's as it's insane as like saying Northern Ireland wants to declare independence from, from the UK and Britain. And then the British start, destroying Irish pubs because, oh, the, there's, you know, Irish people who want independence. And so they start persecuting people in Britain and mainland, right? That's what happened. And so, you know, th if you have 140,000 people, Jews being kicked out of Algeria, right? No one's saying, hey, you know what? We need a two-state solution in Algeria for those Jews that were kicked out or Morocco, right? 265,000 Jews removed. You know, we, we need a two-state solution in Morocco because, you know, they kicked out all those Jews and, uh, you know, it, it's only fair, right? The only place where you hear the two-state solution, this type of thing, is with the people who are in Gaza and the West Bank because it's a political tool. Okay. It's a political tool that is used now more effectively as an anti, as they would describe it, an anti-Zionist tool in a political sense. Because before they had to use, you know, the traditional Islamic jihad rhetoric, but then they turned it into a humanitarian and right of self-determination, right? Which, what is right of self-determination in democracy? That's not self-determination. So as libertarians, we know, yeah, that's that's an obfuscation of reality. That's not that's not self-determination if you're forced to a government. So they use language to obfuscate reality, and um, and they would never, the, no one, none of these people would ever, ever, ever say all these Arab countries need to make restitution and give Jews their own satellite states in all these different countries where they were kicked out of. So that that's kind of the insanity part, the hypocrisy part that I like to point out. Okay. Um, your, you and your father recorded a podcast episode recently. Brief summary. What was it about? How can someone listen? 
Sure. It, well, that won't be uh, difficult to listen to because it's currently only on my Facebook. So you got to be oh, Facebook. Okay. But it is a good one. Um, if you end up checking it out, we discussed the question of whether Israel, uh, the people, the Jews, uh, descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that kind of thing, uh, whether they have any future plan in the Bible. So there is this ideology that is in a split in Christianity where some people believe that Christians are essentially the replacement of Israel uh, entirely. That is that when God worked with the people of the Jews and Israel, that was a different covenant and that covenant is no longer to be. And now through Jesus and Christianity, um, everyone is included in the new covenant for salvation. You come to salvation through him, but there's no future a, a Jewish um, meaning or or application, anything in the New Testament, like everything. And at the worst case scenario, every reference of the state of Israel in the New Testament is, is read off as just being the church. It's not even the Jews or Israel. So we were tackling that issue and, um, you know, basically showing how even linguistically that makes no sense, you know, reading certain things. Uh, but it's a fascinating discussion uh, because that also underpins different people's opinions of whether they support Israel today, you know, for better or for worse, of course. That's, you know, the question of why certain evangelicals in the Bible Belt will send money, like $70 million to the state of Israel. That's a question of why some people are like, we hate Israel and we'll unify with the Muslims to be like, yeah, let's let's uh, get those dirty Jews down and, and, and make sure they don't have a state because they're the world source of the world's problems, right? That unification of the, the people who love the whole um, – reimagination of the crusaders and and want to relive that and bring down uh the jewish people right so you have you have this kind of interesting spectrum of different values of of hardcore support of israel and then hatred of israel and of course there's people who are just like yeah i don't care but whatever they don't apply you know so fascinating dis discussion and it certainly is a, a worldview that affects people's actions okay you recently had a debate with clint russell i think it was the latina libertarian podcast Brief summary, how did that debate go? Oh, I, I enjoyed it. Actually, it wasn't even supposed to be a debate at first. We were just talking, uh, and it was last minute because, uh, you know, she, Olga, was like, hey, you want to jump on uh, with Clint tomorrow and talk about some things, you know, uh, with, with Israel and this and that? And I was like, yeah, sure. So I was getting ready for the gym, and I just, you know, hop on. And we we talking, of course, everything was great in terms of where we, we shared uh, similar views. Um, and then eventually we came to points where we had disagreements and where we had disagreements. Um, I simply thought that he was using contradictory framings about um, the nature of the state. Right. So he would use this idea of people having um, a choice and a say and a direction, you know, what the people want when it comes to government action. And then when I would say, OK, so by that logic, if the people want slavery, it's what the people want. Right. They voted for it. And then he's in a rock in a hard place because on one hand, he's trying to advocate for a certain type of nationalism and say, oh, well, it's okay to have certain borders or have certain things because that's what the people want. But then when it comes to something you don't like, oh, uh, you know, you're, you, you suddenly are struggling because now if people vote for it, okay, you can justify slavery. You can justify genocide. You could, I even said, you know, okay, well, by that logic, the people of Israel voted and uh, they wanted the people who are Arab out. So there you go. <laughs> you know what I mean? So you really lose a lot of philosophical ground 
if you work from a framework of statism and collectivism and rationalize government action based on this abstraction of it's what the people want, which, you know, as, as principled voluntarist libertarians, we understand that that's a farce. Uh, the government does not do what people want. People vote, uh, but the government does things that people definitely don't want. So uh, you, you can't work in that uh, analysis. It's not, it's not an appropriate critical theory for looking at the nature of victim and oppressor government action um, and and what's right in justice. Okay, Jack, I really appreciate your time for the episode today. Before we wrap things up, if someone is interested in learning more about Jack Lloyd and your wife, Fo, it's Fo, right? Fo, like you're going to say Fo. I'm sorry, but, Fo. Fo. No, you're good. Okay. A Fo dish. Um, yeah, so what, what, how could someone learn more about the two of you? Sure. So a uh, website to kick off, you know, if you want to just check out all the crazy wild things I do, Jack V. Lloyd, that's J-A-C-K, V is in voluntarist, L-L-O-I-D, jackvloyd.com. Kind of links to a lot of my different projects and and presences along the internet because I, I just do so many things, it's hard to encapsulate. And then my wife, she has The Philosopher, that's T-H-E, the word The, The Philosopher, P-H-O, like pho, like the Vietnamese dish, P-H-O-L-O, Philosopher, uh, com, And that is uh, her website. And you can link to a bunch of stuff there. Of course, if you just kind of look up The Philosopher or you look up uh, you know, Jack Lloyd voluntarist or something like that. It's going to come up on Google. So there's just a lot of things that I do. And, you know, if you want to join in, especially on what we're working on right now, the voluntarist comic series is uh, going to close up just after Christmas on Indiegogo and on fun, my comics. So be sure to check that out too. I love it. Jack Lloyd. Thank you very much for your time. Oh, my pleasure. It's always a pleasure with you.